You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hey, Narcotica listeners. This is Zachary Siegel, and I'm broadcasting from Chicago, Illinois. The episode ahead is the final installation of our Beyond Borders series. Before we get started, I just want to briefly recap the first two segments, showing you how much ground we've covered. In the first episode, Narcotica's Troy Farah interviewed Sanho Tree, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, about the U.S.'s dark legacy of exporting disastrous drug policy around the globe, and in particular, how that policy fuels waves of people fleeing violence and corruption in their home countries, across the Americas, and the Middle East. If you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend you do. The second segment in Beyond Borders, Philadelphia's roving journalist Chris Maraff interviewed Vice News' Keegan Hamilton about the myth and the man, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, who, in February, was found guilty on numerous counts, ranging from operating a criminal enterprise, a vast operation distributing cocaine, heroin, and illicit fentanyl, and how corruption at the highest levels of government was complicit in it all. That episode, as well, is a must-listen. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to author and journalist Don Paley, whose incredible book, Drug War Capitalism, exposes the powerful political and economic interests, such as U.S. oil companies, that benefit from a violent and paramilitarized war on drugs. I'm air-quoting War on Drugs because, as you'll learn from our interview in just a moment, this so-called war is not about controlling substances. It's about controlling people and their land and extracting every drop of value from it. Don Paley is an independent journalist who has been reporting from South America, Central America, and Mexico for over 10 years, and she's written numerous hard-hitting pieces for The Nation magazine. Before we get started, I just want to thank our loyal Patreon subscribers. We can't do this show without your support. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts if you haven't already. It helps more people find our show. Without further ado, here is Don Paley. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to have you on and share your perspective with our listeners. I think few journalists, especially in mainstream outlets, have connected all the dots of the war on drugs in the way that you have. So thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much. So to, to start off, in, in Drug War Capitalism, your, your book, you place violence across Colombia and Mexico in material, political, and economic contexts. And in doing so, you sort of unpack the true motivations for the war on drugs. 
can you just start off by giving us an example of how you know drug control and U.S. foreign aid are sort of used as a cover to advance interests of corporations? That's a really good question, and it, it like it's deceivingly simple. Um, so drug war capitalism. I wouldn't say it's necessarily about like the true causes of the violence and, and the sort of, because I think like the thing with the drug war, there's, there's so much happening at the same time. So there are groups of people moving drugs. There are homicides that are linked to that movement. Um, what I call the militarization of prohibition, but then there's also this undercurrent, which I argue in drug war capitalism is ignored, I think in the media and which is something that we need to highlight a lot more which is how these kinds of violence actually also can benefit the interests of, of capital, the interests the interest of corporations. Um, so to come with one concrete, really concrete example, um, that's fairly well documented in Mexico, we could talk about the Juarez Valley. So people, listeners might, might remember when Ciudad Juarez was in the news quite a lot, which is a border city, right, which shares a border with El Paso, Texas, because it became the murder capital of the world, because of many killings of women, because of enforced disappearances and so on. So not far outside of the city in a rural area, there's a, another border crossing that's called Guadalupe Tornillo. Um, on the Texas side, it's Tornillo, Texas, and then Guadalupe Chihuahua on the other side. And residents um, have told journalists and, and, and international observers that you know, for years they experienced this extreme violence, largely at the hands of state forces, but it was reported in the media at the time as being a you know, showdown between two drug cartels and basically transformed that area of Guadalupe into a kind of a ghost town. So thousands of people left a town of thousands of people. Do you know what I mean? There was very, very few people left um, because of the violence directed towards um, the residents of the city. And it was always told within the sort of official discourse of you know, the war between these two, two cartels and so on. And so when the journalists started going in later and getting a, a better version of the story, they started to hear this over and over again. Well, actually, it was, it was largely state forces, militarization, federal police, the military, and so on. And what was also happening at the time was the construction of the new border bridge and essentially the transformation of the small town of Guadalupe, a largely agricultural town, into uh, they're building these sort of new, this new concept in, in maquila manufacturing. So they're building these huge, not just maquila parks, where you know there's just a clusters as they call them of of assembly line factories but actually where the workers would live inside the factories so transforming the sort of whole geography as well of this little town and so i think part of what drug war capitalism is is sort of a call to look at other factors at play instead of just buying into this discourse that is so convenient for for governments for the u.s government for the mexican government to talking about, you know, it's bad guys killing each other and actually see, okay, who is actually being killed? This is like the, the, the weakest plank of their argument is when we say, yes, but who are these people being killed? When nine out of 10 times in Mexico, you don't even have an investigation, right? So like they're, you know, constantly criminalizing the victims when there's not even an investigation. And oftentimes we don't even know who there are. The number of, of unidentified bodies right now in morgues in Mexico, for example, sort of flies in the face of the idea that we know who the victims are. Um, so, in, so in a proper it, win, it, it, yeah. It, in this ghost town, when mm. when thousands of people left, in its place, a sort of like corporate feudal enterprise just magically appeared, with a factory and people to live, and it it dis displaced one group, and then moved in there to 
yeah. that's that, that's wild. Like, like yeah, yeah. And there's and there's a very famous family in that region called the Reyes Salazar family, and they were among the first to denounce the militarization, to speak out against it. But for years before that, they had also been organizing against um, all the toxic waste that had was being dumped into the river systems, and just like a really activist family, and that family was obliterated. You know, they were disappeared. disappeared. Some of them were forced into the United States. Others were, others were murdered. So it was like, first it was a campaign against the Reyes Salazar family, and then they just went off and sort of were able to disguise this, this mass displacement um, as, as a war on drugs. And like I said, like constantly criminalizing the victims, constantly saying it's a war between cartels. And by doing that, they also, they tell journalists and they tell reporters and they tell you know, people who would want to be in solidarity, it's too dangerous, you can't go there. Don't step foot, Do you know what I mean? So it's just sort of like putting out these warning signs and saying it's no man's land, it's a war between cartels, and then transforming the, the economic, political, and social geography of the area. And that's, and that's one case that's well documented. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, the thing with drug war capitalism is it's kind of like a call to, like, let's think about this differently. Let's, as journalists, do different kinds of research and, and different kinds of work on this. Because um, it's not a conclusive document saying this is this is what's happening. It's kind of like let's let's shift our analysis so that we can try to get a better understanding of what's going on. Because there's so many cases that we that we don't know about, that we haven't heard about, that we haven't had the good reporting on yet. Yeah, and and that gets into why you're often critical of the dominant media narratives that only focus on like narcos and these juicy stories right. of of cartel territory and violence and these sort of intra fights among cartels and of course this is entertaining media but it narrowly focuses on so much and the bigger picture gets lost and so right I, and right so, and there's a few yeah. sorry there's a few kind of crucial lines that i think would just keep in mind like the greatest purveyors of, of violence in modern times are states like so why are we going to focus on these on these demons on these drug cartels or even terrorist groups like isis i would argue when we see over and over and over again in the facts who are those that have the most weapons the largest armies the most at their disposal versus states over and over again right yeah and this was so apparent to me following the trial of uh, el chapo guzman mm -hmm. recently where all these like lurid details of of uh payoffs and bribes and and drug trafficking and just this vast network of of, of criminal enterprise being unpacked in u.s courts and again we just don't see so much of the other factors uh that are that are happening in mexico that that let someone like El Chapo Guzman thrive and 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 run a business there, and 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 who else is benefiting from from his kind of business? Right, and also that sort of that sort of trial is a very favorable way of airing again the official story because anything that is not directly connected to this person becomes ex extemporaneous to the court case so it's not heard right so we don't actually hear about the the broader networks that are supporting this it's all has to link back into this one man and that's all we get to hear about the man and it's the like myth. but there's also a whole system right i mean yeah and um after of course after the trial and he's convicted and found guilty on all counts it's sort of paraded as like you know the war on drugs is working like we like this is a huge success 
And it's like, meantime, America's in the midst of a deadly overdose crisis where heroin and fentanyl have never been cheaper and more available. And yet the whole raison d'etre of the war on drugs is to make drugs scarce and expensive. Just like by every metric, this war is an utter failure. And then we get one court case that heralds it as a success. Right. And that's where like, you know, one of the arguments of drug war capitalism is that if we use their metrics, the drug war is a failure. Their stated metrics of lowering the street cost of drugs and, and dismantling these networks and so on. If we use their metrics, it's been a complete failure. But they, but they continue to repeat this policy. And so the argument is partially like, maybe it's about something else then. Like maybe there's metrics that they're not stating because if they came out and said like, this war is about displacing people from their land, you know, in the United States about incarcerating, you know, black and brown, specifically young men and indigenous young men, um, this is about, you know, social control. If they came out and stated that, I will think they would be able to proceed, right? Right. Um, and, and, but I think that when, when if, we're, if we do a, a sort of a, a reading against the grain, as Walter Benjamin would say, of the drug war, we can see that there's all these other impacts, which I think that, you know, it's been, it's been since Plan Colombia, which is where drug war capitalism starts in the year 2000, like almost 20 years of this kind of policy and they just keep doing the same policy, right? Which is this massive investments in militarizing prohibition in the South, in South America and in Mexico. And we can't talk about unintended consequences. I mean, the UN still talks about un violence being an un unintended consequence of this kind of policy. And it's like, but after 20 years, it's not an unintended, it's a known consequence. And in fact, I, I argue that it's a driving, a driving motivation for this kind of militarized prohibition is, is, is social contr control through homicide and massacre in the United States through, through the prison system. Right. It might be unintended quotes, but it is foreseeable and foreseen over the last two decades. And, and I think it would be debatable. How, how could you argue uh, that, that, that that's unintended? <laughs> Maybe the first time you could say it was unintended. Yeah. But once it's a known consequence, I think it's a known consequence. It cannot be an unintended consequence anymore. But that kind of separation of, of sort of the, action, the actions, the policies from the effects and the ability to sort of criminalize all of the victims is, is really one of the, the, the best things about this type of, of drug war, of, of discourse of war, I think, for the governments that are perpetrating it is that it gives them this plausible deniability all the time. And it, and it creates this sort of, well, you know, those who have lost a family member, those who have an incarcerated family member, they must've been doing something bad, mm -hmm. right? Which is very polarizing um, socially. Yeah, and like the, the, the most potent and scariest illustration of that to me is really Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, just extrajudicially, killing anybody who is quote suspected of being engaged in using drugs or dealing drugs meanwhile thousands of people are dead and it's called a drug war like that mm -hmm. to me just is so infuriating because like this yeah. is a genocide it's not a, exactly it's terrible yeah that's a, that's i think one of the one of the most sort of blatant examples and i think brazil is is also sort of i mean with Bolsonaro moving towards a sort of Duterte kind of social cleansing model, um, totally racialized, of course, um, you know, especially along the lines of like extreme anti-blackness mm -hmm. and using the drug war and using narcotics constantly as a sort of excuse why, right? And this is not new. This has been going on in Brazil right. for a long time. In fact, like one of the interesting things in Brazil is it was Lula 
that first brought in some of the mandatory sentencings and some of the, the harsh penalties um, for folks that are that are using substances. And so there's this, it's just this interesting thing, even from the 1960s, um, going back to the sort of, you know, the counterculture times, uh, Julia Buxton in her book, A Global History of Narcotics, which is a really fantastic book, she talks about how in, in the 60s, and a regime from like the Soviets, from like Uzbekistan to like the United States, France, Cuba, like it did not matter sort of what the political position of, of the government was. They were using narcotics to to take to take youth off the streets, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was it didn't have a political ideology attached to it. It was sort of like just this very useful way of criminalizing you know, big, big parts of the population. It goes back before that, but the 1968, I think time is really interesting when looked at mm-hmm. in that way. And I think today too, like we can see all these different governments from the sort of progressive governments to these like super, like, you know, like Duterte and Bolsonaro and then Trump, um, all still sort of hanging on to the enforcement, the militarized enforcement of prohibition um, as a key lever for, for domestic social control. Yeah, and with with Bolsonaro in in Brazil, it's like you know he's he's got a, a used Chicago economist working mm-hmm. in his or advising him, and then I see uh, an article in the Economist about Bolsonaro uh, tackling the pension problem, and so it's just like totally right. fucking absurd when there is a uh, a, a, a like a, a serious fascist threat, uh, someone who for the free market means. We, oh, we can just mow down the rainforest. Like, like that's what the free market means for yeah. like Bolsonaro. And, 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 and of course, in these governments, you still see how drugs are a scapegoat everyone can get behind. Oh, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because it, during the Cold War, I, so I just finished um, my PhD dissertation and I worked a lot on, on the ideas of how the war that we're experiencing now with the drug war is different from, from the Cold War. And one of the things about the Cold War was that the the leaders of these regimes constantly had to be kind of outmaneuvering this political opposition. It was very clear that it was a political war, right? So it was, uh, you know, these these young upstart guerrillas or organizers or unionists who are demanding a different society and the government constantly saying, well, they're foreigners, they're communists, they're, sub- they're subversives, they're, they're guerrillas for this, this and that reason they should be killed. And, and, and today, the drug war, what it does, it, it, like, it puts us into this sort of alternate universe where it's totally depoliticized. So the idea is that all these people who are being, who are being murdered, who are being massacred, who are being disappeared, who are being displaced, they, they, were, they were bad. They're bad people. Yeah. And it also takes any kind of political, the political content has been stripped out of it. And I, and I think, you know, in, in some ways, that's a consequence of the fact that it, com- it comes after the Cold War. So the political left was, was, you know, hit really, really hard. And, and I don't want to say destroyed because it's still there, but, but decimated. Mm-hmm. And the political content today, it's the right-wing political content. It's a reactionary political content. It's about taking more. It's about taking more, taking more land, taking more rights from people, you know, to undoing people's organizing. And, the, and so then we're supposed to believe that it's not political. It's not political because there's no leftist because where's the leftist? And it's like, well, actually, I think, you know, 200,000 murders of, of mostly young men, mostly from poor communities over the last 12 years, that's political. I'm sorry, that is political. You have all of these mass graves. You have, you know, tens of thousands more people disappeared just in Mexico. That is not something that, that isn't political. So I think part of the other piece is like, 
working on how we think through that and repoliticize what's happening so that we can understand that we're actually living through these reactionary wars that are extremely right wing and, and that require sort of like thinking and proposals about how we get out of this that aren't like, oh, well, you know, we need like prison reform. Okay, yeah, that's fine. You know, like the first step or whatever. But like, we need to think on, on a much more radical scale because we're seeing how ideologically the same structures or the same systems of control, like with the drug war can, can be used like from a sort of friendly left wing kind of government to a extreme right wing government with, with the same kind of ease, right? Yeah, and, and when you put it that way, uh, the, the sort of progressive policies and criminal justice reform that's like, you know, bipartisan here, it, it only barely nibbles around the edges of the problems that are really, yeah. really endemic to this thing. And so like we get something like the First Step Act, which affects exactly. a tiny minority of the Federal two million effect. people who are incarcerated mm -hmm. in, in this country. And it's like, you know, it's funny that they called the, the First Step Act because it's just like the tiniest, most minute steps mm -hmm. one can possibly take if they really want to tackle this problem and i find I, I think it's i've always kind of thought it was sad that that that, that left that sort of establishment left that's that that sees progress in, in these incremental things and maybe you know for some people there is some progress maybe there's some improvements um wouldn't hold up the abolitionist left and say like this is where we're going mm -hmm. but there's just like this still this total fear of being like too radical but like when when, when i sit down and listen to voices like anti-abolitionists like um, Miriam Kaba or Angela Davis, I'm always just like, yes, like these, these women are exact, this is exactly where we need to go. This is the kind of way, the structural ways we need to think about this stuff and not just sort of, well, let's make it, make sure that people get three square meals a day when they're behind. It's like, okay, come on. You know, like the, abol the abolitionist stuff is, is really exciting. And, and so is, I think the, the conversation around, you know, regulation. And, but all the way, you know, not like, okay, let's legalize marijuana. Let's talk about, you know, regulation or decriminalization of all substances and, and, yeah. and take the discussion all the way to, to its logical endpoint, which is, which is where we need to go. Yeah, totally. And when it comes to the sort of small incremental progress, like the Marijuana Justice Act, all the presidents in 2020 are getting behind, which would just mm -hmm. effectively deschedule cannabis, Mm -hmm. There's still a section of Democrats, the sort of corporatist wing that is still against this stuff. And, mm -hmm. and so the, the, the progress is, is slow and ongoing. And, and even with something like, like cannabis legalization, there is still so much pushback and then rehashing old fears about mm -hmm. psychosis and murder and violence right. related to this drug. So, you know, thank just, you, Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if he's like, exactly. And so <laughs> I, I have a piece coming out soon in, in the New Republic just about mm -hmm. uh, just the, the, the rhetorical, political history of using old fears mm -hmm. around cannabis. And, and I thought that strain of panic was dead. Like, I did mm -hmm. not think you could tap that vein again in 2019. But of course, you get someone like Gladwell and the, mm -hmm. the Marshall Project buying into it. And then mm -hmm. soon we're discussing, you know, how many people are going to come down with schizophrenia when we legalize cannabis. It's like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> right. And I mean, I think I, I recently heard some testimony by um, 
by Alejandra Ocasio Ortez, and she, and and she and she was she was saying, you know, the the warning that I think a lot of activists have said, but it was it was really amazing to hear say it. Like, you know, it this is this is not something that that white people should be making money on. Like the the communities who have paid so heavily uh, over the past decades but with their lives mm -hmm. for the prohibition of marijuana should be the ones who are given like the possibility of, in, of participating in it once it's like a legal business and participating right. as owners and as, as like as leaders. And I think well, like part of the thing that's so frustrating about sort of what you're identifying is it also seems like there's this other cycle where these people who are so against it and so against it, the next day they're like entrepreneurs. Right. John, and they're the ones, they're, oh, yeah, they're perfectly positioned have made this huge investment and are now just going to be like, and that's how they're coming over to the other side. It's like, well, actually you can make a lot of money on this. Great. Okay. Actually, you know what? Yeah. But it's like that, that's, that's, that's not, I think it's really, really good that there's strong voices out there. And I, and I also think we need to think about marijuana as sort of a, I mean, it's so different from, from some of the other substances, but true, it's, true. it's a test case, right? Like it's a different kind of capitalism, <laughs> like more just American capitalism. I'm going to, get into the business of this and and, and of course and I mean, ex exclude the communities who've been ravaged by this very business exactly. for for a century exactly um so I, I would jump back to something you were talking about moments ago about how um we blame the victims so when, when someone gets killed it's like oh well you know they were involved in this mm -hmm. in this shady business and, and that's what happens when you know they are asking for trouble and and i feel like when you know back in the midterms when the republicans with the help of media stirred up this frenzy about the so-called migrant crisis this word migrant is just doing so much heavy lifting for for the audience and and i can you sort of elaborate on on like who migrants are when they show up at our border and 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 yeah, like I, I just feel like we're not at all told what conditions they're fleeing, why they're fleeing. They're just called migrants. Sure, I mean that's that's a that's another really big question, right? Um, I think something important to sort of point out is that now you'll probably recall, like in 2014, there was an unaccompanied child minors crisis, right? So there was all these young, young, young folks uh, showing up without their parents um, and crossing the border, and then the sort of the recent wave has been you know, really tied to the caravans and also family separation. These are all Central Americans. Mm -hmm. And that is because the Mexicans that come, Mexico has an agreement with the United States, they're immediately deported without trial, right? So they're not, they're not, they're not held or that normally they're not held unless they make an, they make an asylum claim. But so Mexicans and Mexican children in general are just being turned around and, and immediately just deported back to Mexico. The Central Americans have a slightly longer process, often months long, often longer, where they're held and then they're put on these like show trials, right? Where there's, you know, 20 people at a time in front of a judge, not understanding what's going on. Um, these folks are fleeing the impacts of like a century of US imperialism, mm -hmm. right? And they're fleeing uh, societies that are so, so violent. Um, and there's, there's just a lot of day-to-day -day quotidian violence. And then there's a lot of violence like by state forces, by the police, just like a lot of corruption. And this violence is, I argue, a direct impact of the inequalities and the sort of structural violence worker formations that have 
being created in Central America by by the presence of United States soldiers and United States advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had these, you know, incredibly bloody civil wars. Um, but I don't, I don't like the word civil war. I don't like the word internal conflict. Like none of the terminology really works. But I mean, you had genocide in Guatemala, right? You had these huge massacres. And this is just going back to the somewhat recent history, the second half of the 20th century after the Second World War. Before that, you also had all kinds of massacres and, and awful stuff under US supervision. Um, but so the peace accords in Central America were signed in the 1990s and right away, like within a couple years, I, I always might come back to this and it's a fairly detailed example, but I think it's a good yeah. illustration. In Guatemala, the last peace accord was signed in 1996 and it prohibited the army from participating in domestic affairs, from patrolling, from being in the communities. The army was supposed to stay on the streets and just be an army just in case there was an invasion from a neighboring country. Mm-hmm. By 1999, the army is back on the streets doing joint patrols in the neighborhoods, in the communities, in the villages, on the pretext of controlling narcotics. So you have the immediate remilitarization of Guatemala. Similar things happen in El Salvador. You know, the U.S. converts their bases into now their anti-narcotics bases and forward operating locations instead of being sort of um, Cold War, you know, anti-communist bases. Exactly. So you have basically this really, really short sort of a blink of something that might appear to be, okay, we're moving into peacetime, and then, and then these nations are immediately remilitarized um, under the pretext of the war on drugs. But at the same time, the U.S. is pushing policy, like uh, forcing these countries to, you know, not to go into debt, like all the sort of austerity measures that we talk about. So paying massive amounts of, of the income that they have into their debt payments, not being allowed to operate any kind of deficits, starving the public sector, starving education, starving the healthcare system, right? Like, so all of these pushing campesinos off their land, um, imposing, you know, really contaminating mining projects and oil, oil projects and, you know, monocultures, monocrops, like um, the, the palm oil is a big one in, in, in Central America. All of these factors pushing people into the urban areas where there's no services, Right, there's huge inequality, and then propping up political regimes, you know, like the coup in Honduras in, in 2009, and everything that's happened in Honduras. You know, we can't separate the fact that many, many, many of these migrants now participating in the caravans, and the, the fact that the caravans are first organized in Honduras from the coup d'etat, mm-hmm. because we've seen just a deepening of inequality since then, and et cetera. So it's really to look at it and say, well, there's like violence and corruption, but like, you can, there's a direct tie to the U.S. economic policy, U.S. military policy um, in, in, in the region, creating the amount of, of people. And it's like they're not migrating necessarily for, for a better life. They're migrating for survival. Like, because, you know, I've interviewed migrants who are transiting through, through Mexico, and a lot of them are working. And they're saying, well, yeah, I, ha- I had a job at a maquila, you know, I was working, but I was having to pay so much extortion every week that I, I could, my salary wasn't even like enough. you know what I mean? So it's just, it's, it's not, it's not going away. Right. Uh, it's, 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 it's an exodus. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge crisis. Like I think, you know, on the scale of, of what's happening or, you know, when, when so many people were leaving Syria 
yeah. and it was always being in the news, right, of how Europe is, is, you know, becoming more and more of a fortress, especially like in the Balkans and so on, to keep out migrants. And it's like, it's a similar parallel. It's a sort of situation that is, is that bad. There yeah. is that much violence. And then you also have a huge amount of, of Mexicans yeah. who, are, uh, who are leaving really, really difficult situations, violence, often first uh, migrating internally within Mexico and then still uh, moving up to the United States, although they say that net Mexican migration is as basically le leveled off at zero because mm -hmm. many have also you know, decided to leave the United States or have been removed from the United States. But yeah, right. that's kind of kind of an overview. I think the big mistake is to just see it as um, as someone's you know flippant desire to like, oh, I'm going to go try this out. It's like no, people are are now leaving because you know they're 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 just the survival. Uh, is not possible in, in their own country. Right, and, and they show up at our doorstep based on decades of policies that we exported there and we shut them out. And, and that's exactly right. When in Syria, the, everyone was trying to enter Germany through Greece and, and board, they'd shut the borders down and, and just leaving people stranded. It's, it's the same thing we're seeing playing out everywhere and, and, and it's also like you know and i'm not i'm not as much of a certainly not as much of a connoisseur of of, of events in syria but it's like um the west has seriously been participating in the destabilization of that country mm -hmm. right i mean it's not just you could blame assad you know not a fan but also like obviously all these different militias and all these different groups or like for example the saudis right now in yemen and so on it's like operating with you know not just complicity from the united states much support from the united states and this is impacting the lives of, of regular folks so it's it's a sort of boomerang you know on these policies that if you're going to go in and and fuck countries up like people are going to leave and then it's just like the biggest slap on the face because not only are people being forced to leave their countries when they come to the united states they're treated as though they're beggars or they're treated as though they're people who you know just in the most just xenophobic sort of racist language, it's really, really, really hard to hear. Yeah, and I, and I think it, it's going to get worse in the immediate future. And I think it's really hard for people to um, understand and see the magnitude and scope of this. Like it is millions of people moving across continents. And, and it's, it's a big, big question mark how this is all going to look in a few years. But it's totally unsustainable and, and and really scary and and again it, it it to to bring it back to sort of drug war capitalism what what you're really describing also reminds me of Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism like in these sort of extreme moments of duress and panic mm -hmm. policy is malleable and it mm -hmm. can bend and move and be changed to fit you know certain interests and I, and I think yeah like like Hurricane Katrina is mm -hmm. is probably a really potent example of that when Barney Duncan, Obama's Secretary of Education, said the best thing that happened to education mm -hmm. in New Orleans was Hurricane Katrina, which is a disgusting thing to say. And here we are in 2019, and New Orleans is the first all-charter school district. Brutal. It became totally yeah. privatized. And so and, we and, see what happens in these yeah. in these sort of moments of extreme conditions. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I'm definitely very inspired by Naomi Klein's work and disaster capitalism um, and, and other work that she's done, like her Puerto Rico stuff recently has been really good. Um, 
and so you know part of the argument of drug war capitalism is is that they 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 manufacture a crisis essentially which is a crisis um based on the militarization of prohibition and while you know for example in mexico while there's just this huge spike in homicides and all of a sudden there's like bodies being hung from bridges and people disappearing or being disappeared and just all this all this carnage in, in regions that haven't experienced that kind of violence uh, in you know in a hundred years. Uh, at the same time, they pass an energy reform, right? They they pass an education reform. They start you know doing politically all of these things, which are very pleasing to big capital. You know, uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, the former president of Mexico, he was on the cover of Time magazine with the headline Saving Mexico in February of 2014, right after he passed the energy reform, basically saying, finally, they opened the, the energy sector up in Mexico. And it, I think it took uh, a society that was terrorized, a society that was fractured, a society that's incredibly polarized around the discourse of, oh, you know, it's even within families, like someone disappears and their cousins and their aunts and uncles start talking to that part of the, stop talking to that part of the family and say, well, they must have been involved in something and for our own safety, we better not, you know, hang out with them or get close to them. Polarizing society, fra fragmenting society to that degree as a sort of um, necessary step towards making these extremely unpopular um, policy, policy changes, which, you know, are, are transforming the entire economy of Mexico is, is now, is now, you know, in a process of transformation. And, 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 you know, interestingly, during Plan Colombia in Colombia, um, the oil, the oil, the state oil company was also privatized. Mm -hmm. And they talk about, you know, Plan Colombia now, because so many years later, the state department itself and the Colombian bureaucrats and so on, they say, well, Yes, we might have failed on, you know, some of the more direct goals like the cocaine stuff, just a little details or whatever, but we were highly successful in creating, you know, a better business climate and so on. They themselves sort of admit that that those are sort of driving driving or the or the what the success was of these plants, right? Right. And it gets back to in Colombia right now, there's a a, a surge in cocaine production. Hmm. And over the past, you know, decade, we've in the U.S. in our name has invested tons and tons of money to eradication policies in Colombia, and here we are in 2018 with headlines, you know, coca production surging in Colombia, and, and it's like again on our own metrics, yeah. this is a failure. And then what you're saying again is well. What are the other metrics? What, what, right. what, what things are actually going on that, 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 that might be benefiting people? And also, can we please look at the drug war not in a vacuum as something that's happening like separate from every other event in yeah. history? Like, no, it's happening within a matrix that includes existing capitalism. It includes the state. It includes social movements. It includes territory. Like, it's not... You know, there's these there's these maps with the arrows on them, and they're supposed to show us like different colored arrows or the different cartels, and it's just like, what is and who invents this stuff? Like, once you're working on it, this doesn't make. Of course, it's going from like the bottom of the country to the top of the country, like. But beyond yeah. that, there is absolutely nothing that in those maps that reflects it. It's just it's it's like a way of talking about violence that doesn't actually say anything. All it does is, is it, I think it, 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 it paralyzes people, it paralyzes researchers, it makes people fearful, and it polarizes. So it's a really effective discourse in terms of like talking like a state, but 
I don't think that's what we as journalists or researchers or, or folks, you know, that want a different and better world. It it's just doesn't make sense for us to talk in those same terms. Right. And so much of the drug war and, and prohibitive policies really criminalize and do harm to the end user. Like, mm -hmm. like at the very, very bottom of this network, you have a corner dealer selling tiny amounts, like, you know, marginally mm -hmm. impacting the local supply mm -hmm. to addicted users. Mm -hmm. and, and this is where we see the, 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 the really harsh and harmful policies that, you know, appear to be doing something about this problem really only affect mm -hmm. the, the bottom, the lowest mm -hmm. hanging fruit. And, and it's, it's also reminds me of, of sort of the, 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 the gun policy debate in America where you only see end users get criminalized for possessing guns. Mm -hmm. And yet we hear right. nothing about the manufacturers, suppliers and distributors of weapons get any brunt of the harsh policies. We just see yeah. young black men get years and years and years mm -hmm. because uh, Michael Bloomberg wants to see uh, gun violence end, and all we do is see the end users get criminalized. It's the same way with drugs. I think it's it's interesting. To, like, so you brought up El Chapo, right? Um, so we also see like this person who's now we're told responsible for like thousands of deaths and all this stuff. He gets a fair trial. He gets a fair trial. What what do the what do the young folks, the young the young mostly young people who are the low ends of this same, these same networks through Mexico, what do they get? What do they, they get extrajudicial assassination. Yeah. They get hung off of bridges. They get, you know, because they're also among the victims of this war. Like it's not to say, to say don't criminalize the victims. It doesn't mean none of the people who have been victimized in this war were participating in illicit economies. No, obviously some of them are participating, right? right. Nobody deserves to die like that. Right. And I think innocence is a really, really bad, bad plank to stand on in terms of like arguing for change. Jackie Wang has a really, really fantastic essay in her new book, Carcerial Capitalism, um, called Against Innocence, where she just really hammers home like why arguing from innocence, it doesn't make sense. But we see the people at the lowest end, the sort of, you know, I, so one, of the, one of the places where I worked a lot in the north of Mexico, folks would say to me when... When the, when the drug trade started changing, there was basically new bosses that came in and they just, they went up to the kids who were already hanging out on the corner, playing dominoes or drinking beer or whatever, just hanging out and said, okay, you're working for us now. Like here's a radio and we'll pay you every week. And what the work that they ended up doing sort of for the cartels was very, very similar to the sort of existing sort of structure of hanging out and being part of a clica or just being like a, 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 like a marginalized youth. But then those kids were the same ones who were picked up en masse and, you know, massacred and murdered and put in jail and disappeared and so on. And so that's how the low, the, the low end, the sort of, but it's not the low end, it's the majority of people interacting with that economy. That's how right. they're treated, right? They're treated with, they're treated as subhuman. Um, and then you have this figure of El Chapo is sort of the worst of the worst and so on. And he actually gets a fair trial. And I'm sure he's getting his three square meals a day. And I'm not, you know, in favor of, of the prison system. But it's like this appearance that he got, he got his, he got, he got, he got heard, right? And it's like, actually, 
that's a very exceptional treatment for somebody suspected of participating in this economy in Mexico. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And, and I think what we're, what we're sort of getting to here is like the, 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 the experiences of everyday people that might lead them to illicit markets or to the drug trade or to cliques and gangs no policy is affecting that experience. No policy is giving people opportunity or a way out of that. So that's why we criminalize the possession of a drug or a gun and they get locked up and the policy upstream that could prevent them from seeing that as an opportunity or an option it, is anti-capitalist. It, it's not on the table, right? It's, 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 it's anti-capitalist. It's, it's you, like, would, you would have to tackle poverty. Right. And right. no one wants to do that, or so let's criminalize tackle, guns and drugs. Or tackle extreme wealth. Right. Right? Like, every billionaire is a policy failure. That was another one I saw recently. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's a great, that's a great way of looking at it. I mean, it, it really, to, like, capitalism is the root problem here. <laughs> um, and so to, to pretend that there's ways, like, so the, the new president of Mexico is talking about, you know, opening up AMLO. all these new, AMLO, he's talking about opening up all these new, spots in universities because every year in Mexico there's hundreds of thousands of of young folks who apply to do a bachelor's degree in a public university and who are turned away and so he's saying we're going to open up all these new spots and so on it's like okay that's good that's gonna that's gonna help for about five years and then they finish their degrees and then there's still nothing at the end and there's no such thing as a living wage in Mexico you know you can be working in the border right now and making less than ten dollars a day and your cost of living is not that much cheaper than it is in the US people cross into the US into Texas to buy goods at lower prices than they can buy them in Mexico so you tell me like at what minute at what moment are we talking about a meaningful solution to inequality and creating opportunities for people if we're not actually talking about, you know, reforming or completely transforming the capitalist system. And so please, so it's too radical, you know, you can't talk about that kind of stuff, but luckily I'm not a politician and I don't plan yeah. to be one, so. Right, <laughs> and, and it just got, just got me thinking like AMLO's policy to, to open up universities for people, it's just gonna create the problem in America, which is you have a bunch of overeducated millennials who can't find fucking work. I have a master's degree and I'm like, you know, freelancing and doing like 10 jobs. Like I wouldn't say you guys are the problem. I mean, I would say the problem is that you guys aren't making a revolution right now. Um, but the problem is capitalism. The problem isn't you guys. I mean, the problem is the system. And I mean, another thing is many of y'all, I don't know about yourself, but like have huge amount of debt. That's just unbelievable. Like on these conditions where you're just, is that like, that real like I still feel like I'm like an old-fashioned kind of like old lady because I went to a public university in Canada and you know our system is just not as horrible as it is in the United States but yeah you know there's um one of the people I work with has this really um I think useful idea and she talks about like a horizon of a practical horizon and a horizon of desire when we're thinking about movements when we're participating in movements a practical horizon is like what can we actually change you know, what are these incremental things that can improve people's lives and so on and sort of work on those things because it does make sense like we do want like you know obama was better than trump hello right. like objectively on yes right like 
like certain policies, certain ways of, of you know, Obama, Obamacare, or like universal health care as it should be, is better than what you guys have. It's better. It's incrementally better. But let's not get like stuck on that as the sort of end thing. I think the other thing is the horizon of desire. Like, what do we want to move towards? Like beyond, yeah, beyond single payer, or what do they call it? Well, beyond, you know, the I want to say Obamacare, but I don't think that's like the right term anymore. Well, right? there's Medicare for all, which is like the one that, you know, there's varying forms of it on the table coming up in 2020. So like, let's like, yes, like I think working, signing a petition and like helping out and, and working on those campaigns is good. But also like that's not, an, that's not an end goal because you still have people who can't, you know, see and people whose teeth are messed and people who have so many other problems that aren't addressed like you know, like including, I think a lot of um, folks who are using narcotics in the United States who aren't being included or who's, so it's like, we always need, I think we always need to be pushing for more and say, well, that's really not pragmatic, but also talking about what those things are. And I think, you know, harm reduction and, and, and regulation and legalization and demilitarization of prohibition are like really utopian worlds because it, it does and has felt like so impossible for there to be any change there. And if we can make some changes on this stuff, I think, you know, prison abolition, all this kind of stuff. It's actually, there's tons of inspiring stuff happening right now. Especially um, in, in Canada, where, where drug user organizing is leading to really inspiring and phenomenal policies, where in, in Vancouver and the downtown east side, you have buying clubs for drug users so that they know that their heroin isn't going to fucking kill them. And, and so... In, in America, that's slowly being exported here. Like, like there are drug user unions here in America. There are unsanctioned supervised injection sites here in America. And slowly, people in public health and harm reduction are going rogue. They're, they're defying the that's law so and, and defying policy. And they're not asking for permission because 70,000 fucking people died last year. Exactly. That's insane. And that's obscene. Yeah, that is obscene. And it's just also, I don't know, it's just so, I mean, it's a little bit philosophical, but like, you know, you think about the so-called sort of tenants of the United States, which is like, you know, like freedom or whatever. And it's like, okay, then why don't we have the freedom to like, to like use whatever substances we right. use, right? Like what, what freedom, like on a society that's built on slavery and colonization, obviously there's a lot of problems with the idea of freedom from mm. the very outset, but it's just so I just don't see why anyways I hope that like a lot of these exciting movements and the, the sort of like the clandestine stuff and the people going rogue just start taking up more space like I think yeah. that's the thing with Ocasio-Cortez that has been like so exciting is just seeing someone who's not compromising and who's just taking up like a lot of space yeah and who's not like watering down, you know, her discourse and stuff like. Fox and I feel News like is a twenty-four seven infomercial for her right now. On what? Oh, Fo oh, yeah, Fox I know, News right? Is a twenty-four like, seven infomercial for everyone. Like, oh, that's awesome, right? Right, they're like accidentally doing propaganda for right. her because they're like free education, free healthcare. This is crazy. Good. Oh, people nodding like in their family yes. rooms are like, oh, that actually sounds pretty good. <laughs> more like more like that like I, I feel like she's she's the one of the most visible sort of folks and doing what what needs to be done right now just taking take, like taking those big ideas and just getting them getting them to take up a lot of space 
Yeah, and I think what you're communicating and feeling is what a lot of people are right now, which is they finally have a politician who represents them. I'm 29 right. and like what, Joe Biden was, uh, like had my best interest. Like, I've never had a politician to, to root for. Like, like so it's, it, it's something new for us mm. growing up right now to have someone who speaks our language and wants what we want. And I think there's like, there's limitations built into the system that, you know, she's obviously coming in contact with and, and, and confronting, but it is, I have to admit it is, it's, it's very inspiring. Yeah. So as, 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 as depressing as this conversation has been, I think we're, we're ending on, on a good note that, that people are, are defying sort of these policies that criminalize end users and harm the victims. And, and that there is a, a sea change potentially coming yeah. because, because people are pissed off and radicalized. Prohibition is good for the state. It's very good for them. It's an amazing tool through which they can finance mercenaries and private armies without using taxpayers' money. And we've seen it in Cuba and we saw it in Nicaragua with the Contras and we see it with the way the, the paramilitaries operate in Colombia and we see it in Mexico. It's, it's, and they need to stop. Prohibition, it needs to end. Like, I think this is really central. And, and I think that it's good when our conversations about prohibition don't just focus on the drugs, but we also talk about, like, the militarization and the police and all the kind of stuff that go along with it in the United States and elsewhere and not see them as such separate things. Like, I really think the United States, unfortunately, is, is the model of the society that the United States is trying to make all our societies in its image. And what kind of society is that? It's a, it's a totally racist, white supremacist society that incarcerates a massive amount of its population and impoverishes a massive amount of its poverty and, and denies, you know, huge amounts of, of its population, you know, education and healthcare and so on. Like that's, nobody wants that society. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's, it's really cool to think about changes within the United States also reflecting out and also being able to, to, to take inspiration within the United States from different movements like in Mexico or the women's movement right now in Argentina and Uruguay, which, you know, tomorrow is the 8th of March and those women are making a revolution mm -hmm. in South America and like, let us all join, right? Like throughout the Americas, you know, against borders and against prisons and against prohibition. Yeah. Well, th that's a good place to wrap up, Don. Thank you so much for for taking drug policy out of its silo and centering it in the material conditions that affect everyday people. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was Don Paley an independent journalist with a PhD from Autonomous University of Puebla, Mexico. Check out her website, donpaley.ca. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Marath, Troy Farah, and me, Zachary Siegel. Our theme music is from Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter, at Narcocast, or check out our website, narcocast.com. If you'd like to support us, please subscribe and donate to us on patreon.com slash narcotica. We couldn't do this show without you helping and supporting us. 
you can also give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find the show. Until next time.